We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. It's my turn. It was my turn three pregnancies ago. There's no heartbeat yet. There's no sperm. I will do anything. I just want so much to be a mother. There's a line. There's a line. And we did a transfer one embryo in each surrogate. I have learnt that I am so freaking amazing. Families come together in many different ways and we need to normalise this. Have sex and get pregnant. It's that easy, right? Not for one in six of us. From the makers of Beyond the Bump, we, Sophie, Jade and La, bring you Behind the Bump. A place to share stories and shed light on miscarriage, IVF, infertility and more. So if you're trying to conceive, or if your friend is doing IVF, if you just love a moving story, then Behind the Bump is the podcast for you. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today on Behind the Bump. I'm here with Sophie next to me, obviously. No Jade today, but um, I was considering holding up her image in front of my face to make Sophie (laughs) understand what she was doing here. But yeah, we're so excited to have you on, Lisa. And I guess, yeah, we're going to jump right in. And obviously, you're here to tell your story of your beautiful daughter, who you now have. But yeah, in your own words, we would love to hear... I guess the beginning of the journey and how you went into trying to conceive, did you foresee any challenges would arise? Mm -hmm. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. I'm already feeling so emotional. I never, ever thought that the journey would take seven years. We started to try naturally and I didn't think there would be any issues. And then all of a sudden months were going by and I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And I remember we were trying for about 12 months and that's when we started to investigate because I hadn't done any tests before that. So we went off to the doctors and had just some basic tests and everything was clear. So we just kept trying naturally. I then went to a naturopath and started doing all of the herbs, all of the supplements, started looking at my diet. And basically this went on for four years. And then in that time, the emotions started really building. Like I remember having this moment where I got my period and I said out, effing bitch. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I saying to myself? You know, I was just angry because I couldn't believe that Month after month, I was getting my period. So I started to work on myself and the way I was loving myself as well. So, you know, not just the diet, not just the supplements, but started working on my mind. I started listening to meditations and doing all of the things possible. In that four years, I then got on to a lady named Alex Stewart, who has a low-tox course. Do you know much about that? So Botox living course. So I started, you know, diving deeper into what am I eating? What am I putting on my body? What are the environmental toxins that I have in my home? And I learned so much during that time, but still I wasn't having any luck. I did experience some early miscarriages in that time. And that was really tough to experience. And then we got to a stage around that four-year mark where 
Anthony started talking to me about IVF and I was like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. That doesn't resonate with me. I don't want to put all those drugs into my body. I want to do it all naturally. So it was a really, really tough thing to do. During those four years and you're doing all of those things to your body and kind of running yourself over the coals and investigating and looking into yourself so thoroughly, how did you reconcile that Mm. with what I'm guessing would have been seeing people around you that were falling pregnant that weren't eating the way you were or weren't doing those things? And like, did you ever feel that there was something that you could do that was going to be different to what other people were doing? Or did you feel like if you honestly just kept on that path and kept doing, you know, everything you could to be healthy, that that was the best chance of success? Yeah, well, I guess at the end of the day, I just kept hoping, you know, I was trying to do everything I possibly could to increase our chances of, yeah, getting pregnant. Yeah. And I think because we had done these tests and there was nothing that really showed that there was a problem, except for one doctor did say to me, you don't have polycystic ovarian syndrome, but you have a lot of cysts. It's like borderline. Mm. So that was always something that was at the back of my mind. Could it be that? you know, how can I improve my health? It was so hard during that time to see so many friends around me, you know, announcing that they were pregnant when we just wanted that. And then I also, I do actually remember one day Anthony saying, oh, you know, these guys are just full pregnant and, you know, they drink so much alcohol and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we're doing everything we possibly can. And why isn't it happening? And at this stage, I was like full on, we're not having alcohol, we're not doing this, we're eating this and organic everything. And um, it was hard. And for four years, that is, you know, I think it's one thing to go, oh, I'm going to do an eight-week challenge of eating well and not drinking, et cetera. But for it to go on month after month after month, I imagine would be so challenging. And Mm. how old were you at this stage? I was about 32. Yeah. Did you feel like in some ways it gave you a feeling of control to do those things? Because I kind of think back to when I was in a similar place to what you're describing and because falling pregnant is so, like obviously it happens at the click of the fingers for some people. For some people they are absolutely drunk out of their mind when they fall pregnant. For others they're doing diets like some people have to do IVF and it feels like this thing that you can't ever really pinpoint on how to do it and how to make it stick and how to make it work. But like there are things that you can control so you become obsessed with them. Like if I just, you know, wear these orange colored underwear on this day and (laughs) like, you know, you do, you get a bit like, um, superstitious. Yeah. Oh, look, uh, for me, I think the obsession was real. I was so motivated to do everything I possibly could. I mean, I have a lot of memories of going to the extreme, But for me, that's what I wanted to do. Mm. You know, I just, nothing could stop me. And did the people around you know that you were trying? And do you have any advice on how to, you know, if, if you are someone who gets 
pregnant easily. Like, how did you like that news being broken to you by friends? We experienced this a lot because, you know, at that age, a lot of our friends were starting their families. It was really, really tough to be told in a, you know, like at a party or Mm. just at dinner at someone's house. I remember every time we were told we would go home and we would bicker at each other. And I didn't realize initially what was going on until I started seeing a pattern because it was happening so often. And I said to Anthony, have you noticed that when we come home after we've heard that someone is pregnant, that we are bickering at each other? And we started, you know, just having awareness around that and then having a little bit of compassion uh, towards each other was really helpful. But going back, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I wish I did have a voice then to be able to send out a message to all my friends and family because I feel the best way to be told is to either send a message or have a phone call first so that the person who, like in my situation, I would have been able to have time to process those emotions. So, yeah, my advice to anyone is that if you have a friend who is trying to conceive and you know it's taking a while and you have a baby announcement, to send them a message or give them a call Mm. first. It's so respectful. Mm, You know, I have heard some people say, oh, well, it's my news and I don't want, you know, it to be taken away from Mm. me. Mm. It's still special for you and, you know, I remember always being so happy for my friends. You just need a sec. Yeah. Yeah, and two things can be true. <laughs> Absolutely. Know, all the time. You can be really happy for them and it can still be confronting for you and cause an argument. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, the other thing that I wanted to mention was when you're facing Christmas Day or um, baby showers or Mother's Day. Mother's Day was a tough one for me. Yeah, you know, just to acknowledge how tough that is to get out of bed and show up and face the day and have to put a face on for everybody. It's so huge. And I imagine days like Christmas where you're seeing people that you probably don't see that often. I feel like it's this awful recipe where people just ask those you know, life stage questions. If you're dating someone, they ask, when are you guys going to get married? If you're married, they ask, when are you guys going to have kids? And you're probably sitting there going, I want to fucking know that too. Like, can you not? Yeah. 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 That was really tough. And for me, I found it really difficult to share with everyone that we were trying to have a baby. I just couldn't face it. I'm not sure why. It was just too hard emotionally. So you know, I, I remember some people that I wouldn't see very often and then they would ask the questions, when are you having a baby? Mm. And my answer was, oh, it's not a focus right now. We're renovating Aww. the house. Or, That's literally all you can think about. You know, and I was like, oh, now if only I could be brave enough and just say whatever, you know, whatever the truth was. But for me, it was the way I was coping back then. Well, you're so in it as well. Like, I think you're a bit frozen inside your own story. And especially with someone you don't know well, it's really hard to tell them where you're at when you can't really place where you're at. You know how long you've been going for, you know what's happened, but you don't know what's 
ahead of you. And I found for me, Mm. that was always really hard to talk about because it was like, I just don't know what my story is yet. You know, it's not tied up in this little bow. It's not tied up. And and people often are going to make platitudes because that's what we do. And that's so fine. You know, people feel awkward. So they feel like they have to say something that's like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure once you relax, it'll happen or just be positive. And that feels shit to hear. So you don't want to have those conversations. You don't want to put yourself in that position. You don't want to put them in that position. But I think it's a good reminder that like any hard conversation in life, like you're not obligated to find the exact words that's going to fix it for someone or come up Mm. with a reason why it's happening to them. I found the most empathetic response or way someone could be to me was just to be real like just to be in the moment and just be present for what I was feeling and maybe ask Mm. a question of obviously validate them fuck that sounds so hard that must be so Mm. hard you know how are you feeling about it today or you know is this do you want to go somewhere and talk more about it or just to like the way if someone told you any bad news I lost my job the other day and you go oh my god that sucks like Mm. what do you want to talk about it like it doesn't have to be something where you have to come up with a solution because you're never gonna make it no and I think people struggle that so much so they just look down or they don't mention it but yeah I mean it's tricky for everyone and I think sometimes being on the other side of it, in quotation marks, is where we can have these conversations easier. And what do you think Mm. about if friends know you're going through this? Do you want them to check in Mm. about it? Well, for me personally, I did share it with a couple of close friends. My best friend Mary was the biggest, most beautiful supporting friend. And, you know, I remember she would check in and she would sometimes just say, you know, I, I remember one particular day she said, I'm coming to pick you up and I didn't feel like going out. Mm. I didn't want to go to the cafe or for a walk. And she said, I'm coming to get you. And she took me out and she was just always there listening and supporting. And I was so grateful for that because she knew how to hold me, but she also knew when to give me a little push to say, come on, mm. let's go shift that energy, you know. Mm. And how were things between you and Anthony at this time? I mean, you mentioned that there was some bickering after parties if someone had made an announcement, but like surely it takes some, if not all, the joy out of intimacy and sex and kind of that Absolutely. connection between you because it becomes you're on a you're on a clock. Yeah. It was challenging. I feel like we had a wonderful friendship and a very solid relationship. But looking back now, I can see where we needed support. Um, So my advice to everyone is when you're going through that journey, it's so important to seek outside support because your relationship does go out of connection when you're in those challenging times. It's just natural. I, I mean, I remember. I was ovulating and we would have sex and it was like we're robots because it was just like, okay, we're on the clock. We got, it's now. And so you lose that, like that beautiful emotional connection because it's like, okay, we've got a job to do, you know? And I think also just that whole emotional side through that, do you sit down and process all those emotions with someone? For us, we didn't, we just kept going and it had a big impact on our relationship. 
So you said you said that you were reluctant to do IVF and it was your partner who was kind of pushing that. What mm. got you to the point where you said yes or how did the ball start rolling in that direction? So Anthony kept bringing it up um, and, it, yeah, it got to that point where I started feeling like, okay, well, it's been four years. I took him through every naturopath across Melbourne, even flew to Sydney, uh, not Sydney, Queensland, to see, you know, whichever guru was out there doing great stuff. And it was a lot. And I just felt like, okay, this is about him as well. It's not just about me. And a friend had just gone through IVF and had success. So I felt like, okay, maybe I need to explore this. So we went and had a consultation with a specialist. And I remember for about two weeks after that appointment, I felt extremely down. It was like this heavy depression because I just didn't want to accept that I have to go down this path. Mm. So I accepted and we started the whole process. So we did first three sessions of IUI and didn't have any luck. And then we started with the next rounds of embryo transfers. During this time, we started doing further investigating and it came up that some of Anthony's levels weren't at the optimal levels. And then also further down the track on the IVF journey, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's autoimmune disease. So I don't know if that is something that was present or if it was all of the IVF drugs that kind of created more inflammation, but I did have Graves' disease as a child and then that kind of balanced out. So underlying, I think there was some thyroid Mm. issues. So, yeah, the journey kept going. We did IVF for two and a half years. We saw quite a few different specialists. We didn't have any luck. None none of them took? Is that what you mean? No luck? Yeah. You didn't fall pregnant? No. At all in that in that two and a half year period. Did you get embryos or yes, amazing, high quality that every mm. time they were like, Oh, these are beautiful, A grade and all of this stuff. So well, you said that at the start of your journey of spontaneously trying to conceive that you had had some early miscarriages. So mm. was that such an added layer of confusion as to like I have been able to fall pregnant. It was a few times, wasn't it? You had a few? Yeah, I had four early miscarriages. Um, And then a period of not falling pregnant at all. Was that like, was that a point of interest for your fertility specialist that you now weren't even, like they weren't implanting or? The first uh, specialist didn't really investigate that any further. I mean, she still did her own, you know, variety of tests. Then we decided to move to another specialist and she did a few different things like I think it's called hysteroscopy Mm -hmm. where they kind of scrape the lining. I had a laparoscopy done um, which showed a very, very small amount of endometriosis. And then Anthony started doing some research because he, we were like, well, what's going on? It's something, why isn't, the embryo implanting. And he started finding this information about the DQ-alpha gene, 
which was being practiced in America. So we got on to, oh, we were actually seeing Dr. Nick Lologist at that time. And Anthony said, I want to talk to him about it and see what he thinks. So we brought it to his attention and he said, I'm going to have a look into this. And now we know that he's using this as his protocol. So what the DQ Alpha is, I don't know a huge amount about it, but you can have a half match or a full match with the, the genes. And if you have a half match, it means that the embryos can still have half a chance of implanting. But if you're a full match, your body rejects the embryo because it's rejecting your partner's sperm. Right. So he has this protocol of quite a few different medications that can basically help your body support that. Or the option is to get a sperm donor or an embryo Mm. donor. Did you try his treatment, the LMIT? Did you try that? Where they take your husband's blood and they turn it into like a white blood cell serum and they inject that into your arm as a type of vaccination? No, he did talk to us about that. We didn't do that, but we did intralipids and all of the other parts of the protocol. And then I remember Nick said to me, maybe we need to look at a egg donor or an embryo donor. And for some reason, that just didn't resonate with me. And this is something that I really want to share with people that the doctors and the specialists are so amazing and so knowledgeable, but it doesn't mean that everything that they say is Bible. You know, like for me, Mm. I just had to listen to my intuition. So I think that we were sort of coming towards, yeah, the end of the two and a half years of doing IVF. So at this stage now, it's six and a half years. Wow. And Anthony started looking into surrogacy. And again, I was like, no, 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 not doing that. This is my job to carry my child. No. Yeah. And was so closed. And he was talking to me um, about surrogacy for a while. And then one day I was on Facebook and a friend who I hadn't seen for many, many years, like, I was probably about 19 years old when I last saw her. She announced that she had her both her babies through surrogacy. And I was called to message her and just said, look, this is my situation. And she wrote back saying, oh, my gosh, I'm coming over. And she literally <laughs> came over and shared her story and literally gave me this big push, this leap of faith to jump into the world of surrogacy. In my journey, I feel like there's parts that I can match up to yours in the DQ Alpha situation and being told that eventually steps like either donor embryos or Mm -hmm. donor sperm would would be the next step. Mm. And I, like you and like anyone, I think that is a very hard pill to swallow initially, all of those steps take you further and further away from what you originally imagined it would look like to fall pregnant. Mm. And I remember surrogacy being mentioned to me as well. And I can imagine, and for me, that felt really hard to get my head around. And I feel like there must 
or there would have had to been such a big grieving process for letting go of that idea of carrying your child yourself. Like how was that one of the first things you had to get your head around before kind of taking the practical steps? Yeah, I remember sitting in my lounge room and, you know, kind of talking to myself to build some courage to surrender. It is the hardest thing to hand that over for another woman to carry your child when you know you want it so much. I yearned so much to carry my child, but I had to somehow move past that and keep my focus on reaching to have my baby in my arms. So somehow I just moved through it and I'm not exactly sure how I did it. We already had embryos in storage because we had decided to do another two cycles and do the genetic testing on the embryos. So we had them stored. So my friend who had her baby through surrogacy put us in contact with her agent who apparently, not apparently, she is very ethical, very beautiful, like I'm so grateful that it was her because you hear lots of terrible stories about the whole process. So we basically had a meeting with her and she was in tears. We were in tears and she just said she can help us through this process. So we decided to set up a contract. And at that time, international surrogacy was happening in India And I was happy about that because my dad was born and raised in India. And Mm. so there was that heritage connection. Mm. And so we then started the process where we had to send our embryos over to, oh, sorry, it was going to be India. But then what happened was it became illegal during Mm. this whole process that we were setting up. And so the next option was to do it in Nepal. So we were still having an Indian surrogate, but just having the birth in Nepal. Is that because my understanding of surrogacy in Australia is that it has to be altruistic. That's right. And that you can't take payment for being someone's surrogate. Yes. So internationally, is it different? Were you paying this woman? Yes. Is that? Yeah. And did you ever consider that there would be someone you could find in Australia? We didn't really go into that because Mm. I just thought it would be too hard and I just felt like I was listening to the signs. Like it's all, this is how we're being guided. So go with that. I mean, you know, ideally it would have been amazing to do it in Australia. Mm. And what were your biggest, I guess, fears going into international surrogacy because even hearing your story I'm thinking if I'm sending my you know you're sending your precious embryos overseas your baby is getting born overseas to you know and and your baby is being carried in this other you know completely different setting probably to how you Mm. live like what were your biggest reservations and then how were you able to get past them and be Mm. comfortable with the situation. There's so many layers of surrendering that I had to move through because 
you know, I would think about, well, what is she going to be eating and where is she going to be and how is she going to be treated and all of these things. And, you know, what about the pollution? Like you, you just can go over and over all of the things. And I'm a controlling person, you know, I want it all my way. So Mm. for me, it was so big to let go of so many things. But I guess there's nothing more motivating when you've been trying for that many years. It's like, okay, I will do anything. I just want Mm. so much to be a mother. So we just did it. Because you were paying for the service and you had an agency, what kind of things were in that contract? Like what level of control did you have? What did you know of what she was doing each day or what updates could you get? Like what was the exact kind of practical arrangement that you had? So I knew that she would be in a particular place with other surrogate mothers, that she would be looked after with food, supplements, Pretty much that's about it that I knew in the way of her being looked after. But, you know, the agent that we had was so ethical. So I think I felt more reassured because she was on top of all of that. But at the end of the day, we didn't have, you know, contact where I could ring her up Mm. and say, how are you feeling today? Yeah. What's happening? It was we, we got a scan at six weeks, at 12 weeks, at, you know, of those Uh, big stages and that's it. Wow. Did you ever know her name or like have a picture of her or did you ever send an email back and forth? No emails. Um, They don't even have mobile phones. So basically, yeah, I knew her name, that she had children and that she was doing this to give her children an education. Yeah, that's about it. So she was obviously doing it for the financial aspect. Are you happy to share how much it does cost? Because I'm sure people that are listening would love to kind of know those details if it's something that is potentially in their future. I can't remember the exact amount, but I know that in every country it's different. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to look back at the contract. I know in the end over the seven years we spent around 320000 to get to Miller. So it's, you know, IVF, the, all the naturopaths, the surrogacy, everything, the flights, it's big, but um, I don't know today what the costs would be. And yeah, yeah, so like in America, it's different costs. Did you ever feel judged for your decision? I feel like people don't speak a lot about surrogacy and often when you hear about it, it's celebrities and there's almost (laughs) this, you know, and I don't judge anyone. If people are going to have a surrogate purely because they don't want to be pregnant or they think it's going to hinder their career, whatever, you do you. But I feel like that's often the stories we hear rather than, you know, I feel like you had a lot less choice around it. Did you ever feel any kind of judgment or, or misunderstanding, I guess? I didn't really feel a lot of judgment. I did feel that people don't know enough about it. There was one person that did say to Anthony, oh, you know, when we announced we were having Mila through surrogacy, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And he was like, I'm not. (laughs) I'm not ashamed. Like, (laughs) thanks for creating that story. But, you know. It's like when you go, no offence, but, and then you follow it with something extremely offensive. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So that was quite interesting. But, you know, the message is that we need to celebrate 
the many different ways that families come together. And we celebrate it with Mila all the time from the day she was born. I talked to her about how she came into the world. Yeah. It's so special. How much it costs for you to come here <laughs> <laughs> every day. No, you can't have that because we spent our money already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're still in the red, babe. You're still in the red. Yeah. yeah. And what happened when she was born? And is there something in place? Can the surrogate change their mind? Yeah, so she's in a contract, but legally she has birthed her. So she has to sign her over. And there have been many stories of surrogates not wanting to sign over the child if they found out, oh, it's a gay couple or whatever reason. You have to adopt her, don't you? Is that the process that actually has to take place? In some countries, yes. So in Thailand, that was the situation. And that's what happened to my friend. So I thought initially that that's what I had to do, that I had to adopt my child. But Mm. we had an Indian lawyer and when we got, I can't remember if it was when we got to Nepal or just before, um, she said to me, no, 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 you are the biological mother, so this is your child. You go on the birth certificate as well. I was so relieved because... Mm. You know, it's a massive thing if you have to go through that whole process of adoption. Oh, God. But I imagine you feel very stressed until that bub is in your Your arms. And you're on the plane home. Yeah. um, From the day we found out when the agent rang and told us, actually, I'll just take a step back, actually. Yeah. When we sent our embryos to Nepal, they go in a... A container and they've got a certain amount of days. I think it's something like four days that they can survive. And apparently it's always smooth sailing. This company that mm. sends them, they send you an email every time there's movement. So you're updated. And there was no communication at one point. And I was like, oh, what's going on? We haven't heard. Still, I think the next day, nothing. And then I ended up contacting the guy and said, what's going on? And he's like, I don't know. We haven't got updates. We're not sure what's happening. And our embryos got lost in transit. And it was the most, oh, can't even express how frightening it was because, you know, you're hoping that everything's going to run smoothly. We found them in Kuala Lumpur somewhere. And then anyway, they got to Nepal And that was all fine. So it's like the stress Mm. all the way through the whole journey. I felt like my whole nervous system was just like, uh, you know. And then what happened was we did a transfer. We had a contract with two separate surrogates and we did a transfer, one embryo in each surrogate. Oh, seems a risky game. (laughs) Yes, risky, very risky, but, you know, at that point, time we were like let's just do it let's just have our instant family and sadly either of them didn't work and I remember laying in bed just bawling my eyes out feeling so defeated oh my gosh and thinking you know what do I do next then I don't know if you remember there was an earthquake in Nepal this is obviously years ago now Um, so we didn't know if our other embryos had survived So there was a big wait to find out if they were okay and if the hospital had been affected. The hospital was affected, but luckily they had some generators 
Oh and God, so all the embryos were saved. So that was another big stressful. How many did you send over? Was it all of your embryos that you had banked? Five. Yeah, we had five A-grade, like genetically perfect embryos. So I kind of felt like they're going to work. Yeah. We've got these healthy women. We've got A-grade embryos. And so I think the devastation of that first round not working mm. was I imagine huge. that's the biggest, and correct me if I'm wrong, the hardest setbacks are when you start something new and you think this is going to be our time. Like I imagine it happens when you finally make that decision to do IVF and that, mm. you know, you think this is just what we've been waiting for and then this is mm. going to work. And then I imagine when that doesn't work, you're then like, oh, and not to put words in your mouth, but I imagine you go, okay, and now we've made this huge step. We're going to do surrogacy. And then, you know, you do the risky move of an, a two embryos and then neither of them work. And you think, wait, but this was, this was our story now. And is that not yeah. going to be our story? Absolutely. And I, I remember going back into the whole IVF when I first saw the first specialist and she said to me, or she said to us, this is just the beginning. And I remember saying, no, this is the end. Yeah. You know, it's probably a bit like my ego was talking, it's a bit of arrogance. So like, oh, I've been doing this for years. This is, oh, this is not the beginning. This is the end. But you have to have that hope. How do you go on if you don't have that hope? Exactly. So, um, yeah, stepping into that surrogacy situation, I was so hopeful that it would work that first round and it didn't. And that's when I really felt a shift in me. You know, you can say I surrender, I surrender, I surrender, but it isn't until you really feel that shift that something happens. I remember just feeling like, okay, I I can't keep holding on with this tight grip. I'm handing it over. And then after the earthquake in Nepal, everything seemed fine. Months went by. We had to then go through organising the new surrogates. We did another two again. Is that different women that you did the second time? Yeah. Yeah, different women. And then one early morning we got the news from our agent and, oh, gosh, I can't explain to you the emotion inside my body. It was such a bittersweet feeling. So excited to hear that one surrogate was pregnant, but the grief that moved through my body was like I felt like my body was going to collapse. And then having to go through that first trimester waiting game and then to share that news with the family was, again, very bittersweet. I found it so hard to say those words that we're having a baby when I wasn't carrying her. Yeah. Constant grief along the excitement. Huge, huge grief all the way along the whole pregnancy. You know, I remember people, if I hadn't seen them for a month or so, and they'd be like, oh, it's going so fast. And I'm thinking, if only you knew that it's going so extremely slow for me. Agonizing. Yeah. Did you feel like you had to come up with a kind of 
line or a way to tell people that you were having a baby when you weren't pregnant yourself? Like did did the wider community know, like when people, you know, what are your plans? What are you doing? You know, you must have had a due date and been preparing a nursery. What, what yeah. were you saying to people? I don't know at what stage. I think it was around 15 weeks from memory that I started sharing it with the wider, you know, community. I had sort of moved through some of the grief and was able to start talking about it. And I then was pretty open. I, you know, I've got an early childhood background. I have a toy business where I had to, I was doing a lot of early childhood conferences and seeing a lot of people. So I started sharing and I started to celebrate that, Mm. you know, I'm, I'm finally a mum. Hmm. as hard as it was it, it was when I started to really open up and then what happens around the due date so basically we had to organize our flights and the agent was keeping us updated with how she was traveling along a lot of babies were being born early for some reason different reasons and so we got to a certain stage, we had our flights booked and then our agent called and said, I need you to shift your flights earlier because I can't remember what it was. There was some little complication that our surrogate was happening. And she said, I feel like your baby's going to come earlier. So I changed the flights and so grateful that I listened because Mila did come earlier. So we did a little stopover in Singapore and then got to Nepal. And for anyone who's been to a third world country like Nepal, it's extremely confronting. Just the poverty is so huge. And my dad did try and prepare me for that. You know, he's lived in India until he was 20 years old. And we got to the airport and we were just like, oh my gosh, what are we doing having a baby here like it was it's kind of a bit surreal you know at that point and we got to the hotel and I was just felt like a mess and I was like Anthony I can't go back out there I just can't go back out there and um you know you have this idea in your head about how you're going to have a baby whether it's a Mm. home birth or in a hospital but you you play out the whole picture you know of you going to it's going to be lovely and it's going to be this and you're going to have support and all of these things For us, we didn't know exactly what was happening. Forgot to mention, two weeks after we found out that our surrogate was pregnant, Nepal became illegal to have surrogacy births. So we just got in by two weeks. And so um, sadly, it was extremely difficult for families to get their babies out of the country just organizing all the legalities, so much paperwork. So there were many situations happening. We met a lot of other couples over in Nepal, Australians that were having their babies through surrogacy. And we spent a little bit of time with them before the births. And some of them, their babies were already born and they were in the hospital. And I think by this stage, Miller was born and the doctors, I was just going to say it how it is, became very corrupt and all of a sudden babies were getting sick and things were happening, blood transfusions and all these 
And I remember a couple running down to us and saying, get upstairs, get up to your baby. They've just done a blood transfusion on our baby. And that's really, really frightening stuff. And what I learned was that if babies were unwell, that they would stay in the NICU longer, then we had to pay, it was $500 US per day. So, yeah, it's really, really frightening things that were happening. So, you know, this, this vision of having a baby and being calm and was the total opposite. So a lot of the other couples that you'd met there had babies that were there that were in the NICU and for either real or pretend reasons were mm. had to stay in there and they were having to pay to keep them in there until a certain date when the doctors would say, okay, they're well enough, you can come and get them. Is that what? Yeah. It, yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And because there was so much corruption, the Australian embassy got involved. And so then what happened was the doctors didn't like that. So mm. they then shut the NICU and put guards on there. So the day that Miller was born, we were in this room and there was a guard and we had to wait for them to call us because we got the phone call when we were at the hotel saying her water is leaking. <laughs> they were like, she's leaking. So we understood her waters broke. So um, we waited patiently in there and then the doctor called us and took us into this room where there were two babies in separate bassinets. And she looked at the babies and she said to us, ah, this is your baby. But oh, she sounded God. unsure. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. And so I said to her, are you sure? And she's like, ah. She's looking. And she said, yes, this is your baby. And I, and I, I was like, we were so stressed. And I was like, I need you to be sure. And so she opened the nappy and she said, yes, baby girl, this is your baby. And then I looked at Mila and I saw Anthony's cheeks and I knew she was ours at that point. Did you know you were having a girl? No, it's, it's illegal to find out the gender. So we didn't know, but in saying that, I knew mm-hmm. deep down for many years that I was having a, a baby girl. Um, to the point where I said to Anthony, are you okay if I bring more feminine clothes? If it's a boy, it's wearing these clothes. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> oh, my goodness, the stress. Oh, the stress just, at every step. You know, it's it's taught me one thing. I have learned that I am so freaking amazing so courageous and so brave to move through the massive amounts of stress that we had to move through. But no one deserves to experience something that we had to experience. It was awful. In saying that, I'm so grateful for every part of it because I've learned so much. And at the end of the day, I have my beautiful girl with me and that's all that matters moving forward. When you saw her in that bassinet and then I just, that moment, I feel like my whole body right now has goosebumps imagining the feeling you got to have of picking her up and pressing her little body against yours. Like, do you just remember that moment clear as day? I do remember the moment so clearly. I remember looking at her and feeling like, oh, my gosh, she's so beautiful. Like I just remember looking at her and thinking, you know, I think every parent obviously does look at their child and just be like, oh, they're so beautiful. But I was just like, 
couldn't believe how stunning she was. I didn't get to hold her on the first day she was born. We only got to see her for about 20 minutes. So that was really tough because I wanted to hold her and feel her skin to skin. I wanted to feed her her first meal, but they were so particular about us being there for a short period. So I did get to see her have her first feed and that was special. And then it wasn't until the day two that we got to go in and I got to hold her. And I have a photo of because she was wrapped up in like a tablecloth. I didn't get to obviously bring the clothes. It was just like they fed her whatever formula. They put clothes on her. And she was so wrapped up that the only part of her body that was exposed was her face. So I put my face on her face and just closed my eyes and just had that moment of feeling close to her. Um, and Anthony got a photo of that, and it's oh, really beautiful. I love to And see then, it. yeah, I'll share it with you. It's really beautiful. And then day three, the head honcho doctor, who was extremely nasty, uh, wasn't there. And so this lovely doctor let us stay in the room um, for so much longer, which was nice. I remember Anthony saying to me, come on, hold her. And I was just sitting on the chair and I was like, I can't, I just can't. Because my body was carrying so much stress that I felt like I couldn't hold her and relax. Did you feel like you were scared to believe it was real and that she was yours because something was going to make, you know, take her away from you? Yeah, I feel like a part of it was that. Like I wouldn't fully uh, dive into that moment of, enjoying that she's mine and that we're together and we're safe you know at this stage she had some bruises on her hands from they were doing blood tests on her every day and what I got to learn was that they were making babies sick through the needles so the stress was just so high I was like I was in protection mode still that yeah fight Mm. or flight but yeah that was that was the day I remember that we spent more time with her. And then day four, which was unheard of, uh, we got her out. It was like such hard work to get her out of the hospital to get that birth certificate. They were trying so hard not to give it to us, but I pretended that I was a doctor or a nurse. I pretended, I said, in my country, I am a nurse and I know what I'm doing and you don't need to be doing these things. And I want the birth certificate and I'm going to take my baby. So I think when I started really, you know, it's like when you become a mother, the lion comes out mm. and I started using my voice. And Anthony was amazing. He got so much work done with all the legalities. He went to the embassy and every stage there was so much corruption. They mm. would just like reject to give you, you know, we had to do a blood test first, then get the passport get the citizenship and they would just reject it because then they would want more money. So then we'd have to pay more money to just get that released. Can I, can I ask something which like, forgive me and you don't have to answer it if this is inappropriate or not delicately worded, 
But I mm-hmm. guess I'm trying to put myself in a position of some of the fears that I would have had going into surrogacy and how it would have felt to meet that child that you hadn't carried in your body yet. And because you're not, I guess, um, given the benefit of all of the hormones that happen when you give birth and like I'm once again, sorry to say these things, I feel like it's like rubbing salt in the wound, but you're not breastfeeding. So you're not having those hormones come up. Like, did you instantly love her? I did. I, um, just trying to think, I I think if I put aside the major stress that I'm going through, it was instant. You know, I, I looked at her. I remember when the doctor had walked out of the room after saying, this is your baby. I went up to her and I put my hand on her and I said, hi, I'm your mama. And she opened her eyes and she looked at me and we locked eyes for a while. And it was like on, on a soul level, Mm. we were connected. And so that love, that instant love was there for me. I think the biggest issue was just trying to relax and feel safe in an environment that wasn't safe and just trusting that, yeah, we were going to be okay. Yeah. So once we got her home to the hotel, uh, it's a big shock to your system when your hormones, you know, aren't prepared, your body's not prepared. And she cried the whole night. And we were awake the whole night. And I remember the next day going, whoa, holy moly, I feel like I've been knocked out. You know, just that sleep deprivation was so big. On top of all the stress you were under. Yeah, just ginormous. So then we had to work through getting her passport, her citizenship and all that, and then getting her home to Australia. How many weeks or months did that take from her birth to being back in Australia? Only two and a half weeks, which was unheard of. People were stuck there for months. Somehow we just did it, you know. I think we were just a really good team uh, working through it all. So, yeah, and we had the agent that was also helping support through that. So that was really good. Wow. When I'm, I was going to ask you if you would, if you ever considered doing it a second time or like, I mean, obviously you either still or still had another embryo there, but after hearing your story, I'm imagining like probably hell no. To, obviously it was illegal now, but like yeah. to doing that journey again. Yeah, it's definitely a hell no for many different reasons. <laughs> One is actually that last embryo, the cylinder was empty. And so we're not sure what happened there. And I kind of have just closed the wondering what happened because it can kind of send me a bit crazy. As in you're worried it was used somewhere else? Yeah, we don't know. Oh, my goodness. So I wouldn't go through another cycle, wouldn't do that. The second reason is because I feel like even though I always wanted to have more children, like I really would have loved to. I, you know, feel content that I've reached the goal of becoming a mother and Miller fulfills me so much. I did experience two miscarriages after Miller. We weren't trying. We just, it just happened. The furthest I got along was nine weeks. And 
I just feel like I've been through way too much. Yeah. It's very taxing physically and emotionally to keep going through, you know, more loss. And then the third reason is that Anthony and I are not together anymore. So, yeah, I'm solo mumming and, um, yeah, I feel like this is the journey. Is he still in the pit? Like does he still parent, Miller? Yes, yeah, we're co-parenting as best we can and we're still friends. Yeah, Been it's really a sad. a hell of a lot together, yeah. Oh, so much together, yeah. And so there's always that love for one another. But, yeah, now's for me time to just move forward and continue to be happy and grateful. And she's six now, is she? Seven. Seven. Oh. Yeah, seven and a half. And, um, yeah, she's divine. And you said from the very start you've been very open with her about, you know, like what's her current understanding at seven? Um, so she basically knows most of the story, but, you know, I don't share a lot of the traumatic parts. Yeah. And, you know, I have videos of her when she's like two and I showed her a photo of her surrogate mother and she'd say, me in there, me in there. And I'd be like, that's right, you're in Mintu's tummy. and. You know, we always just talked about it from word go. Mm. We even, at when she was three years old, we showed her some videos of uh, us in Nepal mm. the first time I met her surrogate mother and I was filming her watching it and she smiled when she heard her surrogate mother's voice and um, we we talk about it all the time, you know. Mm. We celebrate every birthday. We acknowledge her surrogate mother because without her, you know, I wouldn't have this special gift of life with me. How do you feel like the long journey and you know the emotional toll, the financial toll? How do you feel like that impacted once you did become a mother? Is it hard to find the hard, like to admit that the hard parts are hard because it's kind of all you've yearned for for so long? Do you mean like in day-to-day stuff? I've just, like people I personally know who have been through, you know, many rounds of IVF or or any IVF at all, they sometimes feel guilty when they, I guess, complain about motherhood or, or, you know, vent about the hard parts, which are obviously inevitable no matter what journey you've gone through. But this feeling of, you know, always having to have so much gratitude for your baby. Yeah, I think it's just so important to acknowledge the emotions. You know, we're all human. And I remember having moments the first year of Miller's life, there was a lot of, you know, she she was crying. The milk that she was having wasn't, she wasn't digesting it well. And it was a really tough time. And I've got an early childhood background, so I know how to raise a child, but nothing can prepare you for those Mm. challenging times. And I remember one day feeling like, oh, my gosh, this is full on and having that, that guilt that I was feeling that. Mm. But we're all human. You know, we have to acknowledge that stuff. And then, yes, be grateful. I, you know, I often sometimes feel like I'm losing it. And then I'm like, oh, you know, I worked really hard to have her. So I don't want to dismiss that feeling of the tough moment. But then I just bring myself to being so grateful 
that I had to. Yeah, you more can use your journey to kind of reframe those tough moments and give you perspective and go. And to know I think you can get through anything. (laughs) (laughs) Holy moly. If I can have a baby in a third world country with another woman carrying her, yeah, I can definitely get through anything. And if there's anyone listening right now who is maybe starting to consider surrogacy or it's looking like surrogacy might be a part of their journey, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I would definitely say to choose someone like the agent that I had, and I'm happy to share her details because she's still offering service because you want to make sure that when you're entering into a contract that you have someone who is looking at all the layers, you know, what country, how the surrogate's going to be looked after. It's not just, okay, we're signing a deal and we're handing money over Mm -hmm. and they're handing over a baby. You know, at the end of the day, yes, that's what it is. But there's humans involved. Yeah, yeah, there's humans involved. And, you know, like I remember um, the Indian lawyer said to me, oh, Lisa, I've never known anybody to look after their surrogate so well you know, because we gave extra money. And then when she, our Indian lawyer came to Australia to visit, I gave her toys for her children and gave her some jewellery. And because how can you not want to make sure that the surrogate is looked after, not just in the time that she's carrying, but even after? So yeah, my advice is to get a good agent. Oh, the other thing I would advise is it's so important to seek outside support in the way of looking after your emotions, your mental health. It's one thing that I didn't do and I now see how important it is because it's tough. It really is tough and you need someone supporting you. Wow. (laughs) God, I'm, yeah, blown away and just in awe of you and I just love the romantic kind of idea of this long journey that you and her were on together and that Mm. you are still yeah you're joined now and you've you know had seven years together and I just can only imagine looking back like that probably feels not insignificant but probably so like all of your fears of not being the one to carry her you probably look at her now and just go it doesn't matter do you like is that a thing that you would say to people yeah, it, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. And, you know, for us, Mila is our biological child, but even for someone who has an egg donor or a sperm donor or a full embryo donor or a surrogate, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it's about that soul connection that you have. You know, families come together in many different ways and we need to normalise this. <laughs> it's so emotional. We need to celebrate this so much. You know, I want Mila to grow up knowing that she came into the world because she was so loved she was and so wanted. wanted. Yeah, so wanted. Doesn't matter how we got together. I so, think she'll yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah, she knows. Yeah. I tell her every night. <laughs> oh, well, what an absolute privilege and honor it is to be able to hear and help share your story. As La said, Thank absolutely you. in awe. Mila sounds like an incredibly lucky and loved little girl. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Lisa. Oh, thank you so much for sharing, you know, giving me this opportunity to share. And if we can give hope to just even one family out there, I feel like I've done a good job. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Behind the Bump. If you loved today's episode, you can head to our Facebook group, Behind the Bump, where you can join in the conversation, find support and so much more. It's linked in the show notes. Until next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.